Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Three Peas in a Pod, the podcast from the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm the editor Paul Jarvis and I'm joined by my deputy Jonathan Davis. Hello. Today Jonathan is speaking to consultant Yusuf Salama of Salama Research and formerly of LA Metro, PBB Canada and the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. We will then reconvene to pick out some of the main points from the conversation. So Jonathan, over to you. Welcome to the show, Yusuf. It's great to have you on. So can you tell me a little bit just off the bat, what are the challenges that you're seeing today? I think it really just comes down to the difficulty in accurately estimating the timing and the cost of projects in a fixed price environment. And, you know, I think companies that attempt to do this really subject themselves to some adverse impacts. You know, for example, if uh, cost overruns occur, a company could experience reduced profits or in some cases, a loss for a project. So in other words, it, it really is hitting their bottom line. And I think that's really the fundamental challenge that this industry is seeing today in summary. Do you see that coming into an end? Do you see a bit more stability kind of coming down the line? I think in the near term and how I define near term is sort of in the next you know one to three years. I think you know we're still going to have you know some some ebbs and flows here because there there are so many different factors that are involved in this process that really do take a, quite a bit of time to to unwind, and I think some of the things you know the the industry has talked about likely since the beginning of COVID is you know we have these supply chain disruptions and when we have volatility in both the pricing and the availability of raw materials and equipment and, and labor. And so I think those things have historically taken some time to, to unwind. And then sort of the umbrella over those items is inflation. Mm. And we're in a, in, a, in a higher than normalized inflation environment where we're seeing inflation, whether it be here in, in North America, Canada, the United States, and, and in Europe, where we're, we're over 8%. And the 40-year the average is, is sort of somewhere around 25 to 3.5%. And so that's quite a bit of a hill that we have to come down from. Hmm. And that just doesn't happen overnight. And historically, we, we just really have not seen that happen overnight. It does take years to do so. So I think in the next one to three years, it's going to take some time for those things to unwind. But we have to sort of remember how we got here. Hmm. And I think there's some history to that that I think we we need to better understand, I think, as an industry, but I think as society as a whole, is we're watching these dynamics take place. And that, that really has to come back to, you know, how did this inflation story get drawn up to begin with? Yeah, I think when you talk about the inflation situation, you know, Milton Friedman famously said that, you know, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. <laughs> and, and in a sense, it can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than an output. Mm. And I think we're currently engaged in a test of this proposition. Mm. And I think, you know, in practice, you know, what we've seen over the last decade plus going back to 2008 is we've seen an explosion in the money supply. And as I mentioned, this goes back to 2008 when, you know, central banks globally began these quantitative easing programs. So let's put some numbers to that for just a moment, right? So in the United States in 2008, there was about $8 trillion in the money supply. And, you know, coming up to 2020, just before the COVID-19 pandemic, we were at $15.4 billion. 
So think about that. There were three quantitative easing programs in 08, in 2010, in 2012, leading up to 2020, and we had nearly doubled the money supply. Doubled the money supply <laughs> in, in 12 years, right? And we think back, you know, from when the St. Louis Fed measured this number back in 1960, it took us 12 years to double the money supply, what it took 58 years or 48 years, I should say, to do. So then you have the pandemic and we're at $15.5 trillion. And then two years later, we're now at $21.5 trillion. That's another $6 trillion. You think of all of that money supply coming into the market. And then in Europe, it's, it's really not that different either where, you know, I'll just use 2020 as the baseline. Prior to the pandemic, there was $12 trillion in the money supply. And now in, in Europe today, you're at about $15.3 trillion. So you've nearly increased that by 25% in two months. And look, increase in money supply is what drives up prices as households, businesses, governments, and foreign buyers are, are willing to pay more for goods. And th that is demand pull inflation. That is what the Federal Reserve is attempting to fight right now, is to slow down that steam. But I think, you know, meanwhile, and I'll, and I'll come back to this demand pull inflation. I think, meanwhile, you know, there's been an increase in this aggregate demand. But at the same time, it's sort of being met by a decrease in the aggregate supply of goods and services. And that's been attributable to an increase in the cost of production. And that has been stemming from an increase in the cost of raw materials, of energy and labor. And that's cost push inflation. So you have these two things rubbing against each other, the demand pull and the cost push inflation, and voila, you have 8% inflation. And that is really being the root cause of this is the money supply, the massive explosion of money supply, where supply is just not meeting the demand at, equally at the same time. But there's a lot of other things that are happening in the supply markets that we can certainly talk about those as to what's causing that situation there. But I think the one thing I just kind of want to wrap it up with is, you know, when we come back to the Fed, because a lot of people have been talking about, you know, the Fed's trying to fight this inflation situation. And what they're doing is they're really going after this demand pull inflation with their interest rate increases and quantitative tightening. But that, I mean, that has consequences to it. And I think for some of us, we're seeing that, I think, in, in the financial markets, for instance. And, you know, so when you're increasing the interest rates, you have to remember that, you know, you simply cannot print money as we just talked about. You know, one person's assets is another person's liability. But in this case, mm -hmm. it's, it's debt. And I think when you recall that there's been an increase in the money supply, and now we have interest rates growing, what that basically means is that the government's businesses, households, service payment for that debt is also growing. And that leads us to stagnant growth hmm. because now we're allocating more money to service that debt. So again, very complicated economic you know, situation that will just take time to unwind as we go forward. And one of the main drivers of the inflation that we've been speaking about is the price of oil and raw materials. And we've seen that volatility go up and down over the last year. Recently, we had a small cut from OPEC and now we've seen some signals from the White House and also signals from Saudi Arabia that perhaps they could increase production later on. 
Where does oil fit into this? I know it's fundamental to construction projects across the board, whether they're P3 or not. So can you go into that? I think when we look at the oil situation right now, we're almost potentially in the next chapter of, uh, unfortunately, of, of what could become a bit of an oil price war. We're hearing, you know, OPEC on one side where we, you know, we're hearing Western nations on the other side kind of going back and forth on this. And, but I think when, when you take a bit of a step back and understand what are the interests of both players, and I think for OPEC nations specifically, you know, I think they're looking at this in an economic fiscal situation and saying, okay, well, you know, we have our own economic dynamics in our own countries. Uh, we also have balance sheets and we also have deficits. And this is our leading economic generator. And we would like to see a fiscal break even price of oil in and around 70 to $80 a barrel. Hmm. I think that, that's what works for them. Now, I think for Western nation, they're looking at a situation where we would like to see a stable price of oil, number one, but one that's relatively low in an area where most consumers can afford this. And I think 70 to $80 is probably where they want it to be as well. Now, how we arrive to that range is, you know, we've really taken a lot of different off ramps. You know, we've seen OPEC saying, hey, we're going to cut production because we think that, you know, prices are coming down too quickly. And then we see Western nations, you know, specifically here in the United States, you know, doing these oil releases out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And you know, then you have the other side saying, hey, you're sort of playing around with the supply markets. And mm. that level of volatility in this back and forth is really causing a lot of volatility in the market, particularly for those that, that require energy. But I think what's, what's important, Jonathan, we have to remember about energy as well. There's the cash price for energy that we see sort of trading each day, whether it, you know, it be on NYMEX or whether it be on COMEX, for instance. But there's other elements that go into that price, and that's basically markups and premiums. And at the same time, you got to get the stuff refined. All those other elements are causing the all-in price of energy to really fluctuate and drive itself higher. So there's all of this noise that you yeah. sort of read on TV, but there's other elements underneath the oil markets. The other elements, particularly on the refining side, there's a long story in there about underinvestment that's been really taking place, you know, in our, in that industry for quite a bit of time. That's also sort of driving up prices. I've spoken to a couple of people in the market, some seasoned, really experienced people who've said that our industry has dealt with high inflation environments before. There are toolkits and there are things we can do to deal with this. And also, we've seen this in other geographies around the world, and they're able to deliver P3 projects in this environment. So how do you see inflation affecting the P3 outlook over the next, say, five to 10 years? It's all going to certainly come down to, you know, how the Federal Reserve is going to handle this inflationary situation. And we've talked about, again, the money supply, that's already there. But I think this, this situation of inflation is certainly different because of all the different elements, you know, that we, I think we've already previously discussed. They're all happening at the same time. We've got this increase in the money supply. We've got this surge in, in items that are, ca are causing the cost push inflation side to move up. We have this undersupply of raw materials. We have the increase in, in, in labor prices happening at the same time. So, yeah. and then the increase of energy price. So you have all of these things happening at the exact same time. And I think Jonathan, it's also, you know, really probably worth mentioning as well is that we, if, when we look at inventory levels, 
of copper or, or, or aluminum, for instance, whether they be in Shanghai or at the London Metals Exchange, these inventory levels are, in some instances, are at multi-decade lows. Mm. And, you know, we haven't really seen that in multiple decades. Mm. And so what happens if the good happens, which is an economic recovery? There, there really isn't a safety net on the inventory side. So, yes, we've seen inflation in the past, but all of these different levers in today's market are very different. And the more you dig deeper into them, you realize just how different they all are. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like the expression in our market, you know, if you've done one P3, you've done one P3. Well, if you live through one inflation, you've only lived through one inflation. Yeah. And, you know, here we are, you know, we are today. I think so, you know, to come back to your question about in the next five to 10 years, I think there's still going to be a robust market to build infrastructure. I don't doubt that. I think what these projects look like and how many of these projects we may have, that's really a good question. The environment will still be strong. It's just, you know, how many projects and what types of projects are we going to come out of this within the next five to 10 years? I think is a really good question. And you know, when you talk to people in the industry, you know, I think there's a lot of people looking at projects that may have a little bit less of a risk profile to them. You know, we're talking student housing or district energy or courthouses, for instance. You know, I think you might see more of those types of projects in geographical regions where they're needed. Hmm. Those might be the next wave of P3 projects you know, relative to potentially public transit projects, which have a much higher risk profile to them. Yeah. And, you know, those may be delivered as P3s or those might be delivered with some other innovative delivery model. We'll come a bit later on to the changing of the risk structure and what's attractive and what's unattractive. But before we jump in there, we can't have this conversation without talking about IIJA. That's obviously put a lot of money into the system, but it's been a torrid first year, a difficult one. How do you see IIJA affecting the market? As you say, it's hard to predict what influence this has, but from your point of view. Well, I think the influences that IIJA are having, it's certainly creating interest and stimulation in building infrastructure. That's what it was intended to do. It's creating a lot of conversation as to, as to how we're going to be building that infrastructure. And what I mean by how we're building that infrastructure is, you know, what's the best delivery model for which to be doing that in? And I think what we're seeing today is a lot of conversation and good conversation about how the industry can help owners deliver these projects. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, whether you attend an infrastructure conference, you know, whether you're attending anything from an industry related event perspective, you're having people have these conversations of underlying all of this is there's money available and underlying this is you have a project. Hmm. And more and more people are trying to get creative about how we can deliver these things. Should we do them as P3? Should we do them as pre-development agreement? Should we do these as progressive design builds? Should we do them simply the way we've always been doing them as design bid builds or design builds? There's a lot of great conversation happening there. And hmm. it's conversation that needs to happen given the backdrop of the market environment that we're in and that we've already discussed. When we look at the infrastructure bill itself, look, the IIJ authorizes... $1.2 trillion for transportation infrastructure spending. $550 billion of that is towards new investments. And that's all the way through fiscal year 2026, right? So we look at this as a five-year bill. And as we look at this bill going up from fiscal year 22 to fiscal year 26, the money, you know, really begins to kind of keep raising itself each year. So the high watermark in 2026, 
Mm. But I think when we look at where we are in the market today, I think much of this money will probably get spent later than anticipated. So rather than the money sort of going into the ground, I guess you could say, by 2024, 2025, you might see this happening in 2026 to 2027. Okay. And I think that there's just going to have to be some patience with that. I know everyone wants to hear an infrastructure bill and get this money spent and let's get going. Mm. But again, you can't look at it in a vacuum. We're in yeah. this market environment and it just may take longer for that money to get spent. But I think ultimately, by the time we get to fiscal year 25 to 26, in 27, we're really probably going to start seeing that money actually being spent. And we're using the time today to create that foundation to figure out how we're going to spend it and how we're going to deliver it. You mentioned earlier on about getting creative, and that could be part of the foundation. And we're seeing lots and we're seeing lots here and there about progressive P3s being used, and they're being backed more and more. But there are doubts about it. And some people are saying that it could just be a bandage to put over the larger wound. Where do you see this kind of risk allocation conversation going? We're going to see new models coming into our market. We have to remember P3 was a new model yeah. at one point, you know, in the United Kingdom, you know, mm. where this sort of first started in the, in the 1990s and into the 2000s. It became a new model in the Australian market and the Canadian market and in the American market. And I, I think the great thing of any industry is its ability you know, to really innovate and create a new delivery vehicle. And I think that's what we're seeing now with, you know, whether it be pre-development agreements or progressive design builds. But I think the spirit of these models is really intended to drive at solving a problem. Hmm. And the problem, as we, you know, sort of as we discussed earlier, is the challenges with producing, you know, certainty around cost and scheduling in this fixed price environment. So, so when you look at progressive design build, for instance, I mean, you're, you're seeing a growing, you know, popularity amongst owners and practitioners, because I, I think at the essence of it, it's essentially, it's hire me to help you scope the project. We'll get the engineers and the architects here to draw it all up. And then we'll work with you under a provisional services agreement to give you a price that, you know, you can count on. And that, that's the essential entity. So you, you're designing to a budget, with a qualified based contractor, you're leveraging the dynamics of design build and construction management at risk in a collaborative environment using a transparent and open book approach to pricing. So I think the ingredients can lead you to navigate through all the challenges we've talked about. Yeah. I think what we need to see more and more of is successful execution cases. Mm. Like, is this working? Mm. Right. But this is very similar to what anyone could have said, you know, 10 or 20 years ago about P3s. Yeah. The ingredients are all there. Now let's see the execution. Yeah. And I yeah. think we're starting to see that with progressive design build. I think for those that still have questions about it, they probably need to see more. I don't know when more will be enough, but I think that we're seeing that with this market. I think we're seeing it as well with other delivery methods, such as with pre-development agreements or the alliancing model, I think as it's called in other jurisdictions. Yeah, and we're talking about this from inside the P3 industry, and it's interesting to see this evolution happen. But right now, we have a lot of particularly small authorities who were just perhaps first considering using P3s. And in your career, you've helped numerous public authorities get projects going. So 
What advice would you give to these smaller authorities who are thinking about doing a P3 or even a progressive P3 and being able to make that choice when there's such shifting sands? It's a daunting prospect. I think the first piece of advice I would give, particularly if you're starting from scratch, is you have to bring in a solid project manager. And this is not just for a small jurisdiction, but this is also for really any jurisdiction. What do I mean by solid um, project manager? You know, someone who has control of the room. And, you know, what does that mean? Does, does the project team know what they're working towards and how they're going to achieve that? Or does, does your presence capture people's attention and, and do you have a plan? Hmm. You know, th this person also has to have command of the message. What good is a plan if you don't know how to communicate it? You have to have command of the process. You have to have command of the opportunity and command of yourself. Hmm. The project manager is so quintessential to the success of what you're about to be doing. I think the other thing, you know, for these smaller municipalities or agencies in general is, so we've got the project manager. That's the first thing. I think the, the second thing is to get on the phone with the Association for the Improvement of American Infrastructure, AIAI. If you're doing a, a transportation project, you know, it'd be AIAI and the Build America Bureau. Hmm. These two entities have a lot of resources, a lot of good tools, a lot of good people. Learn from them as best as you possibly can. And then I would also get on the phone with other public owners that have done similar projects. Learn from their experiences. Yeah. So, you know, right there and then you are getting a lot of education into your agency and you haven't spent a dime yet. Not one fiscal dollar has been spent as of yet, and you've just made yourself that much smarter. Mm. So I think contacting you know, industry agencies or government departments or other agencies across the country that have done similar projects. I think you know, the other thing is, is that you've got to secure a project champion you know, within the agency or within the region that, that might could be a political figure, for instance, so that they can get behind the exploration of the P3 model. Yeah. Right. We're not saying commit, but we just want that person to come in and say, I'm supporting us as an agency, as an mm. owner, mm. exploring this. Mm. And I think lastly, you know, you have to commit a budget to getting qualified advisors and then begin on that path. I think that would be a good start. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a good start for any small agency. There's many other steps, but I think again, you know, you want to take this step by step. That would be a good start. Fantastic. Okay. So we're getting quite a broad picture of what we've got in the industry. We've got significant headwinds that we've spoken about. We've also got tailwinds. It feels like with IIJ, it feels like we're a little bit in the eye of the storm. But there is opportunity and resources to go for new projects that come through. It is possible. So if you're going to dip your finger into the P3 industry pool right now, what kind of temperature are you reading? I would probably in the short term say I'm optimistic, but I'm optimistic for this reason. And this goes back to a lot of things I think we've sort of just talked about. You know, we have a lot of intelligent, creative and, and sharp people in this industry. And I think where we are today is we're really undergoing the, this paradigm shift in mm. the industry. You know, we talked about the new models coming out, for instance. But I think this paradigm shift really touches on everything. You know, how we conduct due diligence, 
you know, on risk, for instance, mm -hmm. on costing, on scheduling, you know, uh, how we hire advisors. I think, you know, we're relooking at how we do that process. At the same time, we're looking at standardizing some things, you know, whether it's value for money analysis, you know, whether it's contracting documents. And I think those conversations are all taking place and we're using this moment in time to refine all of these things, to anticipate the changes and the volatility that this industry is going to be facing for the next 18 to 24 months. So I'm optimistic about that. Yeah. Now, for the longer term, this is where I'll say I'm bullish. So this mm -hmm. is kind of going 2025 and, and outwards. And I'm bullish because we have a lot of infrastructure needs in this nation to begin with. But I think more importantly, you know, we're seeing innovations in technology that are, are really going to be pushing how we rethink and we reinvent our cities and our communities. But not only that, we're also seeing innovations in technology that are gonna bring down the cost of how we refine steel and aluminum, for instance, hmm. right? And then we're also seeing innovations in construction methods. So you're, you, what I'm talking about there is, you know, you're seeing more modular construction processes that are taking on. I think that will also help reduce cost in our industry. And I think lastly, you know, you're also seeing changes in environmental standards, whether that's to air quality or to water or to solid waste disposal, that's going to radically transform the infrastructure that handles those things. Yeah. And yeah. so you, when you sort of put all those things together, you know, we're going to see more sectors opening up to P3 models, to innovative, into other innovative delivery approaches. And then as I talked about earlier, I think you're also going to see other asset categories jump into this. And that's, you know, you're looking at a growth in student housing and courthouses and, and airport redevelopments and broadband and district energy. Yeah. And you have all of these levers that I think in the long term really create a very bullish sense. I think there's just going to be some patience hmm. that's going to be required for us to get there. Yeah. Uh, but I think if you're in this for the long haul, it's really difficult not to be bullish when you're looking at a longer term trajectory. Definitely. Well, I think that's a great note to kind of round things off. So thank you, Yusuf. This is a banquet of food for thought for everybody to listen to. And I really think that listeners are going to appreciate this stark, but also quite fair analysis of where we are. So I just want to say a big thank you to you, Yusuf. Thanks for joining. Well, thank you for that. Um, a bit of a gloomy outlook, I think, overall. Uh, it's clearly going to be a difficult environment for some years to come. I think I take it a little bit differently than that. It is a gloomy outlook when we look at any metric of kind of the economic, global economic scenario. We've got recessions in some places. You've got, as we will talk about later, the price of oil is, is was higher than it is now, but still extremely high. But the feeling that I really get is that we've got to find what we can build off of. We've got to be able to find like the reality so then we can build these long-term projects. Because if we go on sometimes, as you see sometimes in the industry, pretending as if things are fine and procuring exactly as we used to and we're going to bump into problems down the road. We've got to be able to have that reality check sometimes and then we can start from there. Yeah, that's true, I suppose. I mean, you know, I find his point interesting about oil production and you know, the policies that are driving 
reduction in oil usage in some areas. I found those quite interesting. I think while the intention may be good, as you sort of pointed out, it will cause at least some short-term economic pressures. And therefore, that transition that everyone talks about, the energy transition, what a great opportunity. I think he made quite clear that it's going to be, yes, an opportunity, but also quite difficult and challenging. And as you say, I guess, the argument that we just have to carry on doing things the same but slightly different is probably not going to be the, the solution. Yeah, absolutely. And But then also, you know, we've got these new risks and these new realities, but we are seeing new conversations pop up, say progressive P3s, which we touched on in the interview. That is a way people are trying to cope with. What did you make of that? Yeah, well, uh, progressive P3 is obviously something that we come back to a lot when we talk about the North American market as a whole. And a a more meaningful discussion at a public authority level and between public authorities and private contractors so that they can deliver well-structured projects. I think that is something that has long been an issue in the US. So, you know, hopefully that will give an opportunity to provide some progress. Yeah, definitely. And recently we went to CCPPP and there was a lot of discussion around progressive P3s and what their makeup actually are and and how you can deal with some of the challenges that they have inherent with them. But also it was that they are for a particular type of project and particular risks and it's not the solution to the global problems that we're seeing, which are affecting P3s, of course. Yes, and P3 is, as people often say, just one part of a wider number of options in how you procure and deliver infrastructure. But increasingly, what we're seeing is that, whether it's through progressive P3s or other types of models, P3 in itself is kind of splitting and diversifying into a range of other options within there, which is obviously, I think, good news, not only for the model and for investors and for public authorities, but I think good news in terms of finding ways around some of the difficult problems that are coming down the line that Yusuf spoke about uh, so eloquently. Yeah, definitely. And one of the main topics that me and Yusuf touched on was obviously IIJA. We've just reached a year anniversary. What did you make of his kind of take on IIJA at the moment? Yeah, well, I think it's an important point that we've not really spoken about very much and actually isn't really spoken about very often. The fact that it does have a, a limit in terms of how long it's around for. That four-year limit is not really very long when you, as you say, we're a year in and it's gone very quickly. Some projects are moving, which is great. There has not necessarily been a um, a sudden waterfall of projects coming through the pipeline, but obviously these things do take time. So you know, maybe year two, three, yeah. you might start to see some of those. But you know, clearly if you're spending a trillion dollars in four years, that's a a lot of money and you are in danger i think of overheating the market as we keep talking about in these podcasts because it's always on the agenda there are supply chain issues there are labor issues there is an inflation issue all these things are affecting iija and you know, as we know there's a finite number of companies that are active in this market particularly the big investors for the big projects yeah so you know there is a danger that there will be good projects out there that will struggle to attract bidders simply because there are bigger, more profitable projects around as well. Yeah, definitely. I recently took a bit of a deep dive into the first year of IJ, and it does split opinions on the progress it's been making and how much you can attribute to these larger forces. 
and how much to say, for instance, how much is being eaten up by inflation, you know, as, as we touched on this podcast. But at the same time, people do need to recognize that IIJA is a $1.2 trillion force in itself. And there's still a lot of bullishness in the market to say that this is going to move the dial. And not just the investment, but also the way that it's changing the definitions of projects, um, the changing certificate loans and the asset classes that you can invest in is a game changer. But it still is too early to tell what impact it's going to make. Yeah, and I think it's worth bearing in mind as well that it won't necessarily always be mega projects. Um, and that, again, comes back to this question of capacity, because I've touched on this in um, some work that I've done uh, on the website around smaller P3 projects. And there is a, an appetite from the investors and advisors to look at these smaller projects as a potential way of um, investing in a way that is effectively lower risk, because you can do several small projects and spread your risk across them rather than doing a mega project where you, you're all in for risk on a, a big chunky amount of equity. Yeah. And also just going back to what you said about the number of players in the market, this also could be one of the ways in which progressive P3s actually are quite valuable. If they can nail the objective costing element of it, then you only need one player in for these projects. You don't need the multiple bids. I mean, I kind of doubt that will ever come true, but there is a lot of variability in the market and there's a lot of creativity. And whilst we are in a difficult moment and there is a bit of a gloomy outlook, I do think that there is the inspiration and, and creativity to come up with some really exciting projects over the next year. And, and there's some big tailwinds as well as headwinds. Yeah, and I think there are as well some reasons for hope. I think, you know, there's quite a lot of focus on some of the work you know, around the idea of providing the necessary support to authorities to get projects off the ground. So you know, whether it's Build America Bureau, Build America Center, or some of the work that the AIAI is undertaking as well, yeah. there are themes and methods out there around trying to actually support the flow of this big infrastructure pipeline. Yeah, definitely. And that was one of the points that Yusuf made, which is that you've got to get that good advice, whether it's from a federal source or whether it's a private sector advisor. If you are an authority considering doing this and taking advantage of the opportunity that IIJA has presented, but are also aware that this is a very complex environment, that advice is absolutely essential. I think it's just good to see that that take being put across and making sure that this is a healthy pipeline that comes out, not just a busy one. Yes, well, I think maybe on that positive note, uh, that's where we should finish. So thank you very much, Yusuf, Jonathan, great interview, and thank you for listening.